You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, you should check out the full finance journey at realvision.com slash rvpod to get the full view of what Real Vision is all about. A video on-demand platform you can watch anywhere. Our members get daily videos and analysis, plus access to more than 3,000 videos for beginners and experienced investors alike, and live events online. You'll join the most thoughtful community in finance. More than 300,000 people who trust Real Vision to be the anchor to truth in the financial world. To get started, visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code PODCAST10 to get 10% off our essential membership for your first year. Enjoy the show. The economic dashboard is blinking red. Is the global economy headed into recession? Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Daily Briefing. Michael Guyad, CEO and Portfolio Manager at Toroso Investments, is here with us today. Hi, Michael. Welcome back. I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. I appreciate the invite. Good. Good. Well, so um, interesting day. We had a batch, a whole batch of really negative headlines, almost right out of the gate for the U.S. trading day. Anyway, Chinese authorities surprising everyone cutting rates after signs of widespread slowing there, New York manufacturing activity falling off a cliff, U.S. home builder confidence collapsing, and yet we had U.S. equities rallying. What do you make of the market action that we're seeing? Fear of missing out is more powerful than fear uh, of a decline. Uh, when you're in an environment like this, <clears throat> look, uh, the, the, this is, uh, you can argue, sort of a classic momentum type of environment. You had a lot of Movement coming out of the lows June 16th in small caps and, by the way, in treasuries, which we'll talk about. Uh, that momentum looks like it wants to stick. And, yes, markets are forward-looking, but I don't think anybody should be surprised that you have some continued drift here just because everyone now is forced to chase. I don't think anybody really anticipated that kind of a move uh, that started really mid-June to where we are today when the bearishness was so negative and the positioning was so negative. So this is one of those uh, catch-up moments for risk-seeking behavior. Now, having said that, uh, there is going to be, I think, at some point, some kind of realization that this is probably an overshoot. And as I've said many times on Twitter, the problem with uh, these kind of formations and markets that look like a V is you don't know if it's a V or if it's a W, meaning you could clearly retest the lows as bearish sentiment maybe comes back in. I think that's what everyone is worried about. I mean, that is what everyone is grappling with. And, and you know, I have to be honest with you, there's a lot of divide in the market. We could just see it, you know, playing out in the conversations that we're having amongst our viewers. Um, and, and, and I think it's amplified everywhere else as well. Um, so you put out, you tweeted something interesting um, that we talked about, you know, briefly over email and, and it caught our eye. And that is that, I mean, when we're talking about how tough this market is, so we have divided opinion, but we also have markets behaving in a way that is a little confounding. And you tweeted out that we've never seen a time in history where we saw a significant drawdown in treasuries and stocks. Um, so clearly it's making things tough, but what's the significance of that? What, you know, what what's going on with these market dynamics? Shouldn't these things be moving in opposite direction? Yeah. So if you pull up that chart, it, what that's really showing is that 
historically in these high volatility pulses for equities, these big drawdowns in equities, it's not my opinion, going back to 1961, usually treasuries act as the quote-unquote safe haven play, where they are either down less or in many cases actually up while stocks are going down. We've never seen in a very, very big decline a matched big decline in treasuries spike in yield, which is what we saw in the first six months of the year. Interesting enough about that chart, it so happened that it ended June 16th, which is when I ran that chart, which is pretty much the low, coincidentally. Now, that candidly has been my hell, right, as somebody who's running these three different funds that use treasuries as a risk-off safe haven, because when you're in an environment where your risk-off safe haven treasuries are acting like equities, your risk-on play, there's not much you can do except take the pain. And the Mm. first six months were wildly painful. It's more than just saying bonds and stocks fell together. Right? It's really about treasuries in particular as the risk-off type of uh, safe haven. Now, if you go with me that that's an anomaly, if you go with me that what we saw the first six months of the year was unequivocally an outlier, which again the data would suggest, there's a lot of really important implications there right? because it would suggest that you may have cut off finally this hyperinflation fear that was, I think, gripping the markets, which might explain why both fell off the way that they did. But it also would suggest that diversification will have a comeback. Right, because treasuries uh, historically are a, a far better diversifier than having 500 stocks in a portfolio when you blend it against equities. That I think is going to be the most important thing for asset allocators, and certainly from a tactical perspective, if treasuries get back to their uh, play as a way of benefiting from stock market volatility from risk-off conditions. Well, then, yeah, you're probably going to see yields lower if stocks take another leg lower, uh, which again would be that W formation. So you see, so it's interesting, you see the the outlier is the treasury performance. Why do you, what leads you to believe that treasury yields will fall from here? So as the NEHB, I think today basically said that housing is in a recession. Yeah. Uh, yes, you always have false signals, okay, in any signal, in any, any anything that one looks at. But I find it hard to believe to think that we're not going to have a recession if you have a housing recession. Because housing is such a big driver of the economy, right? If housing tends to lead in terms of uh, declines and in terms of expansions, contractions and expansions. So if housing is just starting its own recession, then probably that means rates have to fall because everything is based on treasuries. The 30-year is based on treasuries. So if demand for housing slows, demand for uh, bonds slows, okay, which causes yields to drop um, in terms of lending goes, how lending goes. And then if that's the case... Stocks probably go lower because, again, the the you we morph from fear over inflation, which oil was the primary driver of, to now what could be a disinflation, deflation fear if housing really does correct in a big way. And that should bring, I think, back these kind of risk-on, risk-off dynamics. We have a couple of questions, and I and I do want to bring them up because I, I think they're interesting and and you know, we've been kind of mulling over this as well. Um, and I'm gonna start with a comment from a from a viewer first on Twitter and then the question from, from someone else. But uh, we had a comment that this will end in tears in September when volume and volatility return. You know, will you be left holding the bag? Not you, Michael, but collectively. Will, will we, anyone chasing this, be left holding the bag? Paul is asking something similar, I think. Pupperman says it's hedge funds plowing back in, trying to make it back before the end of the year. Do you agree with that? Is there something... I don't want to say technical, but is, is there something in the nature of the short-term markets right now that could be exacerbating this move? Maybe, although if you look at seasonality in terms of where we are in the presidential cycle, we're still tracking actually pretty closely 
two historical periods where you had a, a weak first half and then kind of a rebound afterwards. Um, yes, I do think there's probably an element of chasing because there's career risk because everything got smoked in this first six months, except commodities, obviously. Now commodities are getting smoked, as we've seen. Um, but I don't think that's the full story. I, the sentiment was so dark mid-June. And I've used that line many times on Twitter. Opportunity always exists when the crowd thinks it knows an unknowable future. I put out a series of tweets saying the market is probably underestimating now upside surprises, which now we started seeing. Mm. And by the way, keep in mind that I really think the driver of this is ultimately oil. It's not really about a Fed pivot. It's not a coincidence that a week after energy stocks peaked, small caps bottomed. It's not a coincidence that a week after energy stocks peaked, treasury yields topped. Oil has, has been what's gripped this market's narrative since day one. It's not really about Fed policy, I would argue. Fed policy is, is reacting off of oil prices. Oil prices are what's driving inflation expectations. If oil keeps dropping, suddenly now disinflation becomes the concern. Well, that's so interesting. We are not hearing that from the Fed, are we? Of course not, because the Fed wants to act like it has control. They want to seem like they're, they're, they're burnishing their inflation-fighting uh, credentials. But if we see oil, so, so you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to pop up. We had Raul on with uh, Andreas on Friday and they were, you know, all, all over the place on this, you know, where are we in the business cycle recession? Um, Raul's been expecting things to weaken. So that's been sort of his base case. They had a very interesting conversation about their growth and inflation expectations. Let's have a clip of that one. Then we'll talk on the other side. I think that. The economic damage from rates, the dollar inflation is done. But what's confusing people is the market's job is to look kind of a year or 18 months forward and think, what are the conditions? Well, even if it's six months forward, what are the conditions in six months' time? This is kind of the Stan Druckermiller argument. The conditions in six months' time, if we're all right that a recession is coming, well, rates are much lower. And if we're wrong, and it's a soft landing, equities go higher. So in all outcomes, equities go higher. So it's a matter of where was the low. So my view is we go into recession. It's pretty nasty. It's pretty quick. Um, and the bond market's right to start pricing in a change in Fed policy um, at the turn of the year. They'll probably go on pause beforehand, by which case, you know, and again, you've been tweeting about this and I've been tweeting about it. All of our work both suggests that the ISM is going to go hurtling through 50 in the next two to three months, which people aren't really prepared for trying to tell people. They kind of know, but I don't think they are. So I think they're going to try and sell equities on it when it comes out. And that's probably going to be a very big mistake because equities and the because the bond market's kind of telling us what needs to happen. But there's still a few factors in place that aren't fully in place. I think both you and I would love to see the oil market sort of break these $85 level, because I think it comes down to about 60. Then the year-on-year -year rate of change would be negative 50%. I think we get negative inflation in 18 months' time. So two really interesting things there. there Raul's also watching oil. Um, and we we did we have seen, as you pointed out, oil coming down. And I, I just want to check. It looks like it's it's below 90 now, 89. So we're not that far from 85. I don't know if you think 60 is a number that you're looking at. Um, but but it's it, everyone seems to think it's the CPI number and maybe the employment report. But you're focused on oil, Michael. Well, that, that's what the market itself seems to be telling you. Again, it's it's 
it's just curious to me that it, it was a week after energy and oil pretty much peaked that you saw everything start to really rally hard. Now, it makes sense, by the way, that stocks and bonds would both fall if it's really about hyperinflation fear. And then you'd have just like in everything burst and everything relief rally, which is why you're seeing stocks and bonds both come back fairly decently. My contention is that at some point that risk on risk off dynamic comes back, meaning treasuries diverge from equities. Stocks do go lower, yields go lower. That's your classic risk on risk off dynamic. Um, and it's important to note that this is whenever we talk about a recession 18 months from now, analysts worry about the endpoints. Portfolio managers have to worry about the dance in between the endpoints, right? The sequence of returns. It is very hard to know if we're going to be entering a recession, but if the market believes that we're entering a recession because oil has fallen so aggressively, which is what happens after spikes prior to a recession, if that's the playbook, then yeah, you probably are going to have uh, risk assets still have another wave lower. So so you don't buy the argument that maybe that's priced in already? The term priced in is, is always an interesting one because it's, it's always priced in until some new information occurs, right? That nobody sure. ever sees coming, right? So it's like, well, in June 16th, what was priced in? I mean, not much, right? Because markets obviously didn't reverse whatever they were pricing in. So my, my point is that it's, it's kind of like this saying that price is truth. Price is always changing. So the truth is not changing every day, right? So I just think that we're in a situation where the sentiment is very obvious to see how extreme it swings. Everyone was wildly bearish thinking the world was basically coming to an end mid-June. Now I'm seeing the opposite. Everyone seems to be suddenly very bullish thinking that this momentum is going to continue. They could be right. Okay, I'm not disputing that. But if the stock market is misinterpreting the message of the bond market, which is that the real concern may be disinflation, deflation down the line, then equities have to respond on that new information and price that in. This is really, really tricky, right? Because you can make a really bullish case and a really bearish case, and you're probably going to be right. It's just depending on where you are on the calendar. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Timing. And that's what's, that's what's been so, so hard about this is the timing. And also, so we're talking about the timing of events, but we're also, we need to say you have to be aware of your time horizon, right, as an investor. Short-term traders are going to have a different perspective perhaps right. than somebody who has a medium to longer-term view. Maybe they're not too worried about whether there's another leg down because they're looking out uh, 18 months. We've been trying to sort of make sure everyone's um, aware of that. What 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 is the time horizon that you're operating on, Michael? Are you are you looking at this from a quarterly basis? I mean, I know you've got to track performance. What is your time horizon? Yeah, it's it's much more short to to intermediate. I, I mean, I'm I'm very much a believer that the longer you try to look out in time, the less accurate your predictions will be because variables come in and suddenly throw off that that forecast. The um, Again, I go back to this point. This has been somewhat easy to see in terms of the sentiment being so extreme. What has been really difficult is the relationship of treasuries to equities, the risk off to risk on play. That right. dynamic comes back. I want to see that with my own funds. It gives me a chance to come back from the drawdown that I myself am suffering through all three strategies. But uh, that, I think, is going to be the most important thing. <clears throat> and the final thing I'll say about that is you got to be really careful with narratives, 
right? Because if everyone starts believing one thing, it's time to fade it, right? So now the narrative changed so aggressively coming off of the low. I tweeted out in early July saying, watch out quickly. The narrative changes. What happened with the narrative in traditional financial media? Well, we're not going to have a recession now. Well, they're saying that because equities rallied so hard. That doesn't mean the recession's off the table just because equities rallied. In bear markets, you have these rip-your-face-off rallies. For all we know, this may be exactly the way a bear market should play out. Suck everybody in, then hit them again. So we have a question from Gino on YouTube, and it's a good one. I want I want to pop this one up and ask it. Michael, are you seeing demand destruction? Feels like earnings so far aren't showing this, yet oil is down. The reserve release contributing to this. I would also say, like, throw in all the data we saw today, right? <laughs> the New York manufacturing, by the way, is, as it's been pointed out, and folks on our air pointed out, is a volatile reading. But still, it's worth pointing out that fell 31.3. I mean, this was a massive turnaround. This wasn't sort of a declining trend line where it's get. This was a completely fell off a cliff. I mean, it's pretty, you know, it's a pretty sizable drop. So, you know, what, what about the fact that we haven't really sh- seen that or in earnings yet? Okay. So th- this is again, why this is so tricky because th- there's all kinds of timing mismatches that are taking place here. Consider that supply chain pressures seem to be abating just as the Fed still wants to be hawkish, just as the economic data is starting to really break down. You could have, oddly enough, a situation where everyone with hindsight says the Fed was too aggressive, which sounds like a really strange thing to say, but given how long the supply chain disruptions have been ongoing, given the lagged effects of monetary policy, and given now an economy that's clearly responded to the oil shock, not the interest rate shock just yet, to the oil shock, it's really interesting because you could have, very, to your point, a very dramatic turnaround in inflation expectations. You could have inflation crash. I mean, if you believe in mean reversion, if you believe that at some point you've got to back, get back to some kind of normalized inflation of whatever, 2 3%, well, you have to really overshoot the mean on the downside, mm. right? And that's, I think, what's being missed in this. If you have a situation where a recession really starts to take hold, it could be very ugly just to undo all these excesses of inflation, and then the Fed is going to be – yeah, you know, with his tail behind his legs, trying to debate what to do next, and that is the fear of some. And and you you just brought up a really great point: is that policy works with a lag, right? I mean, we kind of feel like in the world we live in, where everything is immediate, that it shouldn't be like that. And maybe there's an argument that it is changing, but most people still believe that these things filter through the economy with a lag. Right, and that and that's why actually the the real lag. I go back to housing is going to be what happens with uh, home prices. Right, because a big driver of credit creation is yeah. is the value of your home, and that is a lag. And by the way, the home prices are only just now starting to break down, and the affordability is only maybe just now starting to pick up. So that's a very early uh, uh, bearish trend uh, that I think, with a lag, will spill over to equities. Mm. We have Malik with a question: With oil dropping, deflation arguments picking up steam, where does that leave gold in terms of asset flows? Could we get a period of stagflation, even with uh, lower oil, hence sideways gold, until the data prints actual ugly numbers? I don't know if you look at gold relative to the way you construct your portfolio, Michael. Well, so gold is actually used as as part of the lumber to gold relationship, which goes into my. Rural ETF, which hasn't really worked because, again, treasuries haven't behaved the way they historically do. But gold is important because it does act as a diversifier in high volatility risk-off pulses. So when you take a step back, there's only three things that act risk-off that benefit from stock market volatility on average. Treasuries unequivocally as number one. Not this year. 
but oftentimes treasures are risk off. Gold is second. Gold tends to act as a risk off asset. And then the dollar. And we know the dollar has been unrelenting on the upside really mm-hmm. for over a year. So demand for gold will increase when people want diversifiers because gold doesn't really correlate to anything. That only really happens with a prolonged bear market. So I do think gold probably does benefit from it. But real quick on the stagflation point, I personally have never been of the opinion that you could have a stagflation. I don't see how it's possible how you could have a system where stocks are going down and bonds keep rising in yield when you have $30 trillion of government debt. Mm. You're talking about collapsing tax receipts, and you're talking about higher interest expense from an already elevated leverage level. You're talking about a system that would have simply stopped working right? because you have an explosion of the deficit. So uh, the, the I, I think you're at a point now because leverage is so high that you have to have one of two extremes, either really, really high inflation that's persistent, good luck because the you know, voters are not going to have that. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, yep. Or the exact opposite, which is a deflation scare. Either way, it's a nasty situation because the only way you resolve an extreme with debt is with another, another extreme. Yeah, that's a that's a really important point. I'm just going to underscore that and say that for those who want to dig in a little bit more on that, we have a couple of great programs on the platform. We'll try to tweet them out that really talk about the issue of, you know, carrying large debt and how that changes the conversation. And it it can be intense, but when you sort of sit through it and listen through it, it's just really some amazing stuff and something we all have to talk about. Off the top of my head, um, Lynn Alden uh, had a conversation with Luke Roman um, where that came up. Um, very interesting. Um, Lynn and Raul have talked about that in the past too. So um, I encourage you to go look at that. We're not gonna we're not gonna get into it right now, but you bring up an excellent point, Michael. And it would be really interesting to see what people think off the back of that that idea of stagflation because we kind of are in a different environment than we may have been in in past historical references when that was you know more in the vernacular. Ralph has a really specific question. Ralph obviously follows your work closely. I'm gonna put it in there. Um, what does the lumber to gold ratio look? looking like right now so this is i think something specific to you michael isn't it yeah i mean it may be starting to turn right because which kind of makes sense because lumber has been so weak so it's probably due for some whatever relief rally itself but um the key with lumber to gold is it's it's funny i have so many people people tweeting at me saying why do you talk about lumber so much while they tweet from their house (laughs) which is it's just mind-numbing the way that people don't see what's directly from it's the it's the classic invisible gorilla Right. As far as that analogy goes, familiar with that book and that study. But the um, right now, it's still weak. It would suggest still risk off, but it's starting to firm up maybe. But this thing, too, it's like th- these indicators are rolling. Right. So which means that you could have a period of rolling strength and then a rolling weakness, rolling strength and rolling weakness. So right now, all else being equal, it's still in, quote, unquote, risk off mode. But it could also rebound because housing, you know, uh, because as yields drop, that also supports housing and makes this kind of secular decline in housing, not a straight line. I think that's the key to this. This is why I always go back to path matters more than prediction. How this plays out, the sequence of returns matters more than the endpoints. I want to I want to ask you something, and, and I don't know if you've been paying attention to this at all. I had a really interesting conversation. I've been slightly obsessed about this statistic. I tweeted it out, but at the very end of a conversation I had with Jeff Schultz, um, uh, I think it was last week, uh, might have been the week before, he was pointing out that. He, he does not expect a soft landing. This is not his base case. But he's always, like many of you do, kind of trying to test his framework, test his thesis, see where he could be wrong. And and he saw some statistics that, that have kind of been stuck in his head that uh, when we're talking about housing, uh, you know, during the last, we're, we're so, everyone's so scarred from the collapse of housing and the great financial crisis when we saw housing prices just plummet. A lot of that was because of foreclosures, because of what happened. And he was looking at a stat that suggested that subprime was 
50 subprime loans to risky lenders who would then, in, when there was a recession or financial trouble, default on their loan and have to foreclose on their house. That drives the house price down. If many of them happen in a neighborhood, completely guts the price of a neighborhood. Uh, at their peak in the great financial crisis, it was, they were at 15%. They're under 2% right now. And he was sort of thinking about, okay, we'll see how house prices go down, but can we avoid the sort of carnage that we saw in the financial crisis? And then does that help ease the extent of the downside in housing? Have you seen any any stats like that? Is that something that you would be curious about? Yeah, so I, I agree with the notion that it doesn't mean you're going to have a crash like what we saw before, aside from the fact that you don't have the same type of shadow lending and mm. and regulations are much tighter than they were. Um, I agree that that's the, this, the way it plays out will probably look very different. I'd argue it can actually be worse in some ways because the last thing you want is a grinding bear market in housing. Mm. Right. So in some way, there's always an argument to be made that it's better to crash quickly than to grind lower over time. Right. So I, I think most likely housing probably grinds lower over time. And the other part of this, which is different, is you do have a lot of institutional players, which are not going to be forced sellers in the event that you really have a significant bear market in housing. But keep in mind, the, the, the real thing that has to be unwound here is all these investment properties. You know, with, with zero interest rate policy and yields being so low, we know what happened, right? Everybody basically turned to anything they could to generate income. So you have a lot of people having second, third, fourth homes that are basically just being rented out via, via Airbnb or VRBO, whatever it would be. And the dilemma there, of course, is that you end up having a renter nation, mm. right? Because it's concentrated around a small group of actual landlords, which are simply trying to extra extrapolate extract rather as much income as they can. So you've got to break that. I mean, all these arguments around inventory being low is to me largely kind of a fallacy. The inventory is low because there's a lot of people that have homes that are not their primary residence. Interesting. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Interesting. That, that, that would be welcome news to somebody who's been trying to buy a house, I guess, if they can can lock in those rates before they go up. Want to want to switch off housing because I I do want to bring up China before we run out of time. This was this was massive. This rate cut today, if we sort of pull the lens out from the US, uh they cut rates, surprise the market, widespread signs of slowing. We have a host of issues. We have the COVID lockdown still in place. It's really hurting the economy. The property market issues continue as they try to grapple with that. We've seen mortgage boycotts, very unusual in China. Um and then Andreas Steno Larson tweeted out something that caught our eye too and this is come up many times in our programming for those who watch these sorts of things, the demographic issue facing them. Um, and, and he was sort of referencing the fact that uh, China's declining birth rates, saying that it's hard to imagine them as an economic powerhouse when they've got this chart. I think he said something like one chart says it. Um, that's part of why oil seems to be moving lower. But that that would suggest that a major engine of economic growth for the globe is you know, is that issue as well. Are we at the risk of a global recession? I think we're in a, a, a secular period of stagnation across the board because demographics are a problem not just for China, but pretty much every part of the developed landscape. 
right? So, I mean, this is now a very, very long-term argument. Again, I, I get that this counters the argument I just made earlier that nobody can see the very long-term. But there are some of, the, some of these really sticky, nasty, secular trends which have not gone away, which includes low birth rates across the board. And the reality is that uh, as long as you still have China being such a big uh, uh, manufacturer of goods, despite all this talk about onshoring and friendshoring, uh, I'll believe it when I see it because the reality is the margins are too juicy. Right, no matter what. And if consumers are used to getting their furniture six months from now, that's fine. Right. So but to your point, if um it's very hard to see how you can have a real booming type of environment going forward, which would argue stocks for the long run is nonsense, if you don't have demographics favoring it. You only have stocks for the long run if demographics are for the long run. Yeah, we're we're going to be paying close attention to the China story. They have a People's Party Congress coming up in the fall. It's going to be incredibly important and some major issues facing that, uh, and and not to mention geopolitical. So it's a it's an issue that we're going to keep, continue to keep an eye on. So Michael, if we if we start to sort of summarize here, so it's been a very tough period, as you as as you pointed out, but you feel like that was an anomaly. You know, the first six to eight months was an anomaly. And you do, it sounds like you think that treasuries are going to make a breakout here, are going to be where the opportunity lies as we head into the second half of the year. Is that correct? If stocks were to go down heavy, so the, the key thing is the relationship between the two, which again is the world that I live in. So it's 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 not a pain. Again, if you go back to that chart, you've never seen a period like what we saw the first six months. You can argue from here to tomorrow. That's what happens in an inflationary recession. But we're now starting to have disinflation, and now people are starting to debate the recession. So was that move ever justified to begin with? That's a whole other uh, discussion. But no, I do think that treasuries for a trade probably make some sense if you start seeing this momentum in equities abate and a reverse down, reversal lower. Um, that will be a great thing because uh, it means the system's working again. And so does it so so are there levels that you're looking at to say, okay, I'm right. And what part of the treasury market are you focused on? Typically, you want the longer duration side when you have these VIX spikes coming in Um, and you tend to have drift, meaning that even after a VIX spike, as VIX comes back in, yields will still drift lower, which would benefit treasuries in particular. What would really confirm it is if credit spreads widen in that. Right. So, again, it's important to know people say bonds and they loop, uh, loop treasuries into that, but treasuries are unique in that they don't have that credit risk, mm-hmm. right? That that you'd have with something like a high yield or a corporate uh, bond ETF. So if you were to see stocks go down, spreads widen, and then treasuries rally, that would suggest we're in a more classic risk off type of environment. That would mean you probably do have another big wave lower in equities, most likely. And that would mean that you have a chance, again, to make money where nobody wants to bet, which is U.S. government debt for a trade, not for a hold. Mm-hmm. For a trade. R- super important. A- and when you're doing that, do you also have equity exposure? Are you, sh- are, w- you know, is it a short equity play as well for a trade? Um, or is it is that tough? Is that a tougher one? Do you have both on at the same time? You know, what's funny is that if you do any kind of back test where the risk off play is either cash or shorting, I don't care what signal you look at. It doesn't work. It worked this year, which is what's so maddening, right? Because everyone then assumes that with any kind of big wave lower, well, then you should short heavy. Well, the problem is if you have a big wave lower and it's very concentrated in the early parts and you notice it after the fact, you probably short at the wrong time, mm-hmm. right? So it's important to note that whenever you think about trading, you want to think about having the right opportunity set that allows you to have a chance at being wrong in your timing but still make money on average, Treasuries are unique in that sense, right? In that you could be wrong that the market goes down, but still make money because it's not a perfect inverse relationship. 
And treasuries, I would argue, are a far safer way of shorting the market over time. Again, not given the first six months, but over time, it's a better way of expressing a negative equity bet than actually betting against equities. It's a fantastic point, Michael. And then last question is, so does does the position on the Fed matter to this outlook if you're looking for that? Does the Fed, do you expect the Fed to pivot? Is that part part of this scenario? So at the, um, the spoke had this great chart at the lows uh, around in June, the total market cap loss of stocks and bonds was estimated to be like $14 trillion. Mm. That's one and a half times the Fed's balance sheet. The narrative that the Fed controls the market to me is complete nonsense. The, the numbers are too big now. It's the, the market is what drives the Fed, not the other way around. So so the, the Fed will be responding to what happens in the markets. Which is why they get rid of their forward guidance. Right? They're basically saying the market's going to dictate everything. I mean, at this point, they are simply going to follow the market's cues. Well, that's difficult, isn't it? Because the only way that they would pivot is if equities completely fall out of bed. Which is risk off, which would go back to the system working again, where you have this kind of dynamic where treasuries rally because it's a disinflation, deflation scare, right. which then causes the Fed to pause. And again, it relates right back to housing. All this is in some way, shape or form interconnected with just different time lags. And do you and you don't think this is so we're, we're entering a period of risk off the market's driving treasuries present the best opportunity. We're likely to have a, another leg down in stocks. What's 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 the outlier for that? What's the what what is there a trigger, a time frame or a point where you'd say, you know what, this isn't going to happen? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think if housing suddenly has a big comeback uh, and stays elevated, you know, that that would probably negate that thesis. I just don't think that's very likely. And these housing is a very slow moving asset. At least it's supposed to be. Obviously, in the last two years, it wasn't as slow moving as historically it tends to be. But uh, you know, from that standpoint, unless housing suddenly has another big resurgence, which is very hard to believe, uh, I think the risks are going to be there for another. You know, I keep going back to that point. Every W needs a V. Everyone's assuming the low is in. It may not be. All right. We've got to fasten our seatbelts. Michael, as always, fantastic conversation. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Thank you. And Ash Bennington will be back the same time tomorrow with Tony Greer. I'm sure they're going to dive into the commodity space and the Fed as well. So be sure to catch that. In the meantime, take care and good luck out there. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.